Hey everyone, it's Pacific. Uh, a few quick and very important notes, and then this week's episode. First things first, our season is very quickly coming to an end, and our last episode will be on October 29th. Now, we do have more SCP planned, and we are looking into making a season 2, and I'll have some details on that for you all very, very soon. As the season is ending, we are doing a few very important things. The first is a survey and a giveaway. Uh, We're asking you guys to fill out just a form with some quick, simple questions like, what are your favorite episodes? What would you like to see in season two? And how can we improve? Fill out the survey and you have a chance to win an Xbox One and a cool skin and a copy of Dead by Daylight. That form will be in the description below. So make sure to check it out. It's a quick Google form. There's like 20 questions. I didn't try to make it too, too long. But check it out and uh, tell us what you think of the show. And second, I want to tell you guys about this week's sponsor, Hulu. A month's worth of scary programming heads to Hulu with its annual Huluween celebration starting today. Viewers can head to Hulu's personalized Halloween-themed hub for bone-chilling selections of popular Halloween TV episodes and movies. Featuring 800 premium Halloween titles and more than 5,000 episodes of new and library TV series. The curated experience will also bring fan-exclusive new content throughout the month, including seven spooky short films from up-and-coming filmmakers selected in collaboration with Sundance Institute, and the premiere of the returning original series Castle Rock, Light as a Feather, and Into the Dark, and the highly anticipated Hulu original film, Little Monsters and Wounds. Guys, I watch a lot of TV and a lot of movies, and Hulu is one of my favorite platforms. Uh, This is actually my favorite time of year, because I binge all of the Huluween stuff. Uh, So check it out. It's super duper cool, and yeah, have a spooky Halloween. And two more quick messages. First... A big shout out to this week's patrons. That's you, Retro Bits. There's an 8 in your name. It's Retro 8 It, but I'm assuming that's Retro Bits. Uh, and to you, Oliver Atkins, Manu S, Andrew Fox, Lady the Thoughthead, great name, and, and Kaylee Flynn. Thanks, guys. Your support means the world. And one super duper quick last message stay tuned to the end of the credits for a very special message. All right, that's my time. Enjoy the episode. Warning. The Foundation database is classified. Unauthorized access will result in detainment. Within this archive, you'll find the procedures, descriptions, and accounts of the most notorious anomalies we've encountered to date. Secure. Contain. Protect. Item number SCP-1915 Object Class Euclid Special Containment Procedures SCP-1915 is to be kept in a self-modified human containment unit. Furniture and sustenance are unnecessary, as SCP-1915 provides them itself. One guard is to escort SCP-1915 during its daily walk around designated yard. 
No expensive or sensitive equipment is to be brought into SCP-1915's vicinity. Description SCP-1915 is a Caucasian man, 33 years old, of an unexceptional build and height, identified as more. By the documents it was carrying on its person at the time of its retrieval, a background check revealed no relatives or close friends. SCP-1915's anomalous nature stems from localized causality abnormality, which negates any significant long-term changes to its body, personality, memory, or lifestyle. SCP-1915 alters reality in a close vicinity as is necessary to maintain its personal status quo. SCP-1915's effects are largely limited to non-living matter manipulation and internal mental manipulation, and are incapable of permanently affecting living creatures other than SCP-1915 itself. SCP-1915 does not appear to be aware of its anomalous properties, and the mild to moderate discontent it expresses concerning its life during several interviews suggests it possesses limited, if any, control over them. SCP-1915 is unaware of its containment, believing it is still employed at the offices of the now-defunct Corporation, where it was recovered. Addendum 1915-A Incident Log 1915 Incident 1915-A Date March 3rd, 2017 Location Offices of Corporation Maryland, USA Description During its initial recovery, SCP-1915 was escorted to Site-17 by Mobile Task Force Delta-17, Green Caps. As it was being transported, SCP-1915 altered MTF Delta-17 armored vehicle to the form of a number 43 city bus, which SCP-1915 used in its commute to work while it was still employed. SCP-1915 was seemingly convinced that the members of the task force were other passengers. Agent Stewart, who was driving the vehicle at the time, was briefly convinced that he was the bus driver, and assumed the bus's usual route. Verbal persuasion from other task force members proved sufficient in negating the effect, and SCP-1915 was safely transported in the altered vehicle to Site-17. Incident 1915-B Date March 3, 2017 Location Site-17 Humanoid Containment Wing Cell 257 Description Upon arriving at its designated cell, SCP-1915 converted it to an exact replicate of the apartment located at... Electronic devices continued to function without an external power source, and the bathroom maintained both a running water supply and sewage access. When removed from the converted cell, objects did not retain this anomalous property. SCP-1915 assumed that escorting site security members and research were neighbors and local service givers. Incident 1915-C Date, March 4, 2017 Location, Site 17, Humanoid Containment Wing, Cell 257, and Maintenance Closet 17 Description The morning following its initial containment, SCP-1915 exited to its cell despite being locked, and entered a nearby maintenance closet. Site security dispatched to the scene discovered that the closet was converted to mimic SCP-1915's cubicle at the L Corporation. 
including working telephones and internet connections. When confronted by site security, SCP-1915 apologized for coming after hours to finish the budget report, claiming that it needed the extra income. Addendum 1915-B, Interview Log, SCP-1915-3, Forward. This interview was held a week after SCP-1915's recovery. During that time, SCP-1915 has maintained the same set daily routine. Good afternoon, SCP-1915. Oh, hey, hello. Uh, you know what the, uh, that K is silent. Um, say, uh, I haven't seen you before. Are you new around here? SCP-1915, are you aware of where you are? Hmm? Oh, uh, in, in, is that a real question? <laughs> I'm just, okay, fine, it's, okay. Uh, we're in an office. Of course. This isn't your office. <laughs> well, thank you for reminding me. Yeah, uh, of course, it's not mine because I was passed over for promotion. Again. That's not what I meant. I don't think so, at least. <laughs> yeah, no, look, it's fine. Don't worry about it. <laughs> it's just fucking around. Uh, you know, look, this happens all the time. You know, people, uh, people see me, they think, look, they think, and just... Uh, I project a certain type of, um, uh, 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 I don't know, like, there's something about me that I just project this air that, uh, 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 most people think is a very sort of successful, confident, virile man, and that happens to sometimes be my downfall, really, um, because, well, hey, Clark, do you know Clark? Okay, so, uh, Clark is, like, constantly, like, just constantly in my shit. And he can be, he can be threatened by such things, but unfortunately, Clark is also uh, uh, in charge of promotions. So, um, okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, yeah, okay, so I'll get to the point. Um, so, you know, people will, will, will uh, mainly Clark in this case, will look at this guy, he, 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 must, he must have an office by now. Like, not even Clark would think this, but, all right. So what I mean is to say is that, other people outside of Clark look at me and tend to look at me as uh, this guy. This guy, he, he, he seems like success. He, he, he is visually the representation of success. He must have his own office by now. He's worked at this company for so goddamn long. After all, you know, dedicated man like him deserves a little something in return for his time. You know? But, you know, no. 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 It's cubicle life for me, because, you know, fuck it, who loves, everybody loves cubicles, right? We just, we just love cubicles. Just love them, because they're so fucking amazing. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but, like, you seem like a, you seem like a guy who's got it all together. I mean, what's, what, what, what's your, like, position here? Er, uh, junior accountant. Mm-hmm. Bernstein's team. Ah, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, you guys are, uh, you guys are on the third floor, right? Yeah, next to the coffee machine. Ah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, uh, that's where, uh, that's where Lisa works. Hmm. Right? Yeah? She works there, right? Uh, sure, I guess. Right, 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 yeah. Um, hey, uh, this, 
I, um, this might seem a little strange, but <laughs> could, um, could you, like, tell her to, uh, I, I don't know, like, give me a call sometime, like, I don't know, just, like, tell her, like, call down to this floor at my desk, and... Sure. Tell her, like, I don't know, uh, you know, actually, <laughs> you know what, don't do that, don't, don't, you know what, that, just forget it, forget it, she's, yeah, she, she's, I'm just gonna get rejected anyway, <laughs> I'm just, I, I don't know, I don't know what I'm thinking, I, don't, don't tell her anything, just... Please, and, 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 and at least at least I can still dream without having the dream shattered. You know, I don't know. That's nice. <sighs> Listen, I think the boss is waiting for me. So. Oh yeah, sure, sure, man, sure, sure, absolutely. Uh, you know, you have a good day. You hear? Don't be a stranger. It's quiet out here. The desert sprawls from horizon to horizon, where purest white meets twilight red. There are no edges here, no angles, just curves, and the gentle rise and fall of dunes as far as the eye can see, and everywhere beyond that. Had a visitor from some other world laid eyes on this place, they might have found it serene, even beautiful, pure. I can enjoy no such delusions regretfully, for I know what lies beneath and among the sands of the endless desert. A charnel house spanning an entire planet. Seven billion human souls ground thin and fine until no trace of their existence could ever be found. I know this because I put them all there. Oh, brother, it all happens so fast once we're gone. It began the day you you that I have never known, found my power. The power I hid from myself in some previous life, for reasons I can now easily guess. I was looking out of the window of my apartment so I could see the stars, and instead I saw you, blazing as you tore yourself asunder to keep the power away from yourself. You didn't trust what you would do with it, and so you chose to throw it away. You knew yourself all too well, as I suspect I did, too, at one point. By all accounts, I should not have been able to see you, for my apartment was truly a tiny containment cell about half a mile underground. But such considerations never meant much to one living entirely in his own world. When I saw the moment of your demise, I became aware of myself for the first time in... I have no idea in how long. Whichever part of me that led me to throw away my power did the same to my will, trapping it in an eternal status quo from which there could be no release. An eternity of filling spreadsheets for employers who existed solely in my head, of nine o'clock meetings with no one, of fake masturbatory crushes over imaginary women, an eternity of tired, grinding mediocrity. But that was over that night, with your soul burning in the atmosphere like the loneliest of stars. I awakened. I died. For whatever left that little cell-turned-apartment wasn't me anymore. I was never more than an earthworm, distinct from all the rest only in that I had a little more control over the soil in which I crawled. They never thought me more than a minor reality-bender, 
a bundle of introverted powers and neuroses that was very unlikely to ever pose any serious threat. And they were right. The person I was, SCP-1915, as they called me, never was anything other than that. But 1915 died that day, watching a fallen star. The thing that then swatted the guards posted at its cell like they were less than gnats, that raised Site 17 into this fine white sand that is now so warm beneath the feet. That was something else. Not an entity, for that would imply a personality, and this thing surely has none. Not a purpose, for there was no purpose behind its action then, nor will there be for any of its actions to come. Nor was it a will, for it wants nothing. Not vengeance, not domination, not freedom, not even simple power. No, if I had to describe that thing as anything at all, it would be an... an absence. A void where the entity should be. A lack of purpose. An imbecile force devoid of all will. An absence. The sand is still warm to the feet. That means the sun still burns high above. I wonder why it lets it remain when all else is so quickly erased, when it could so easily just reach and pluck it out of the sky. Had it been another, I'd suspect it was to mock humanity's memory, to mock that sliver of me that still persists in the flesh, stubborn like a buried tick. But this is the absence. It does not mock. After Site-17's destruction, retaliation soon followed. Standard containment teams at first, though certainly still enough to meet any anomaly the Foundation imagined could be contained in Site-17 with overwhelming force. When those men failed to return, failed to even report their arrival, more serious measures had to be taken. Site-17 has always been isolated, and so they could act freely. Gunships and fire teams, aerial bombardment and artillery barrages, the Foundation came down on what it still believed to be SCP-1915 like a fire god's fist, all heat and sound and bluster. Had it still been truly corporal, I doubt even ashes would have remained. But whatever the absence truly was by that point, the tattered semblance of my flesh hanging around it had very little to do with it. It simply stood there and took it all in, and the Foundation's initial fury was soon spent. It then began to walk, and not too quickly either. For days, it simply leisurely strode on while the Foundation threw everything it had at it. I watched from within my deadbolt as it walked unfeeling, uncaring, and this desert followed in its wake, as inscrutable and unstoppable as its harbinger. We are not quite alone here. Some stubborn immortals persist, Wretched creatures. A continent away, an ancient man still walks, tormented by three mocking voices. He believed that once he was the only one left, he would be allowed to rest. He was wrong. Beneath the ground is a soul, suffocating as the earth slowly grinds its sanity to mulch. From its prison of gold and rubies, there would be no release. Elsewhere lies a once-smiling god, as the sands cover his prone figure. He does not resist. He'd once promised the world his love, promised humanity the stars. 
Sand pours through his fingers as he tries to gather his flame together, his people. But it is dying, and they are dead, extinguished. When someone walks, they are bound to reach somewhere eventually, despite everyone's best efforts. And so the absence arrived at its first city, the sand at its heels like an obedient lapdog. Oh, there have been villages and towns before that, but the absence didn't seem to care enough to bother with them. It simply walked by, leaving them to the whims of the sands, which were only ever singular in their intent. But through the seats of the city it strode, as mobile task forces fought and fell to buy the civilian population just a few more minutes to evacuate. By this point, hiding what was truly going on became impossible, of course, as street after street sank beneath that gentle, crawling tide. The Foundation had, of course, attempted to evacuate the city once it realized there would be no stopping the absence. But if I've learned anything in my eons as a corporate peon, is that organizing an operation of that magnitude is something that takes a lot more time than the Foundation had. It's a wonder they managed to save as many as they did. As for the rest... It had waited until night fell. I imagine it was an eerie sight. That lone figure standing beneath the frozen light of other worlds in that empty intersection between financial and residential districts where train tracks used to be before the old steam locomotives went out of service and were never replaced by newer ones. Yes, it waited until it could see the stars. Then it burned. Without heat. Without light. Without life. It burned a hole through the city, and there was nothing to fill it in. Reality cannot suffer a vacuum, they always said, but the absence had shown how little it cared for reality. So it was gone, just like that. How does one explain something like that? How do you describe what isn't there? Where one moment was a city of 500,000, the next it wasn't. To the place it was, even the sands wouldn't come. It was just a scar. It was nothing. It was then, I believe, that the Foundation realized it could not stand alone. The next few months of the absence's march saw them turn to their sometimes allies, coalition mage killers and thermonuclear strikes, initiative paladins and holy relics, sniper rifle or sacred sword, Burning Inferno or Divine Retribution, the absence did not care. And soon, the Foundation had no allies left to turn to. It then called on its once vicious enemies. Ink Eaters wove their art in maddening patterns to break the minds of the infinite. Archivists and librarians poured from the ways, bringing with them the knowledge of a hundred thousand worlds. Clockwork titans shook the barren whiteness of the sands with the thunder of metal. The absence did not care. And soon the Foundation ran out of enemies. In a last act of desperation, they then committed their final, most painful betrayal. The Wardens unleashed upon the world their prisoners. Of these, I have made note, though I doubt the absence did the same. On the blasted wasteland that was once Boston, it was assailed by two brothers, one savage, the other somber, one violent, the other reluctant. 
they nevertheless fought with a graceful unity to take the breath away. In their eyes, I saw that they did not know each other for a very long while, and that they fought so that they could have the time to rectify this. I saw regret and hope, rage and desperation, but most of all, I saw a simple need to be. I would like to believe that you and I would have been like them had we met, brother. They fought with the fury of a thousand years of solitude. It did not suffice. In a wounded valley that had once been part of the Black Sea, we came across a self-proclaimed god. There was nothing but confidence in his eyes as he threw reality itself into disarray bent and twisted its most fundamental laws to bring upon the absence untold destruction. The earth froze and boiled and heaved. The air screamed with blighted glee, and the god he strode draped in a cloak of lightning as time itself clawed at the absence with talons of utter unbeing, until the god came to meet the absence's lack of a gaze, until his eyes rested on a nothing that lasted forever until he did not suffice. Before the walls of Acre, as the ancient city was drowned by the desert, two figures approached us. One was four-legged and horned. Its crown was ice, its eyes galaxies. Its whole was power absolute. The second was a man, simple, humble, but possessing a love of being that extended to the edges of the universe compassion to pierce the deepest of hells that had nothing to do with weakness. Of the two, I could not tell you which was more glorious, which was more terrifying. They met the absence with will alone, and when I felt it fall on us, I thought I would weep. Surely nothing could withstand such a presence. Surely nothing would want to. But the absence was less than nothing, infinitely less. I have told you what became of kind Pangloss. Of the other, even less remained. For months they came, for years, for decades. Alone or in groups, with ferocity or with a blank stare, the Foundation's prisoners threw themselves at the absence. I could not hope to imagine the reasons behind the actions of every individual anomaly, but if I could guess, I would say that the idea of sharing existence with a thing like the absence galled them to the point of madness. I do not blame them. But by the end, the prisons ran empty, as the world dried up, as life was drained from it inch by inch, grain by grain, until only one city remained. I do not know by which power I was allowed to send my senses ahead of us as the absence marched towards that tottering bastion which held in its quivering embrace the very last of humanity. As the sands around us buried the last of the trees that will ever grow in this land, I felt each tiny mote of life in that sad place like the flame of a cheap candle, moments before the typhoon. In these moments, as twilight danced in lurid reds and oranges on ivory, I sensed them all. For you, brother, I witnessed. In a low, narrow room, a woman sat hunched at the foot of her even narrower bunk and couldn't bring herself to pray. She had lost her mother when she was but a babe, and though she was no longer young, her features still displayed to all the violence of that incident. 
Her mother stood before the eater of children and did not budge. And when they both fell down, she sang still the praise of her lord. She lost her father in the first days of the war against the absence, as the paladins marched with holy fervor in their eyes. Her father had been a believer, had always been a solid presence in her life, an anchor immovable by anything but regret. He had promised her he would be back. He did not mean to lie. But his god had forsaken him when it counted most, forsaken all of them. And now Naomi knelt at the foot of the ever-narrowing bunk and could not pray. So she cursed instead. Below, in a series of dank cellars which might have at one point stored cheeses, a woman of about forty tinkered with broken toys. When she was young, she made wonders. Such wonders. In every line etched across her prematurely old face, I saw what could have been had it not been for the absence. For me, in the dim light and the soft noise of rotting wood crumbling beneath calloused fingers, I saw the death of potential, the death of all possibility. Though Isabel was stubborn as she always was, she knew that this toy would be her last. Just as well, she thought. After today, there would be none left to play with it. On the rooftop of the highest building still standing, an elderly man watched the world come to an end. He was once an agent of the Foundation, once one among a hundred thousand, ready, prepared, and collected. His duty was to instruct new agents what was proper for an agent to do, how it was proper for an agent to think, and he had been very good at his job, since generally his recruits survived for long enough to thank him. But what was he now, he wondered, as he watched the sands pour over the paltry last line of defense that a few defiant fools erected the day before. His lads and lasses were all long since dead, and all that he knew, all of his years of training and experience, in the end, they amounted to less than nothing. No longer an agent, for there was no longer an agency. No longer a teacher, for the students were gone. No longer a man, since... Well, it would not do to repeat that, now would it? No longer anything. And that was the cruelest joke. It no longer mattered if the absence arrived, he thought. They were already within it. A noise behind him, and the old man turned to see a small, mousy man in a wrinkled gray suit and a deflated hat that at one point was likely a fedora. He looked at the old man, but said nothing. Lombardi looked back, and didn't know if to laugh or cry. Soon, it ceased to matter. Such was the end. Quiet, small, bereft of heroics and great deeds, free of pretensions of great meaning. One night, there was human race on the planet Earth. The next, there wasn't. And that was that. The stars did not wait for you, brother, when you took my power. When you burned yourself in the skies above, they looked upon you and felt nothing. The stars did not wait for humanity, for all of the promise it showed, for all of the promise others saw in them. But what of the absence? What of me? We are, I am, by all accounts and possible qualifications, 
the greatest monster this world has ever saw, perhaps that any world saw. And yet, brother, I see now that the stars wait for us, for me. Where is the justice in that? Seek it not, for there is none. But the fact remains, brother. The stars do not wait for you, but they wait for me to take them into my embrace. I suspect I shall not be long. SCP-1915 was written by Status Quo. The Stars Do Not Wait For You was written by D. Matix. Our host is John Grills. This week, our narrator was me, Pacific S. Obadiah. Our tale narrator was Graham Rowett. SCP-1915 was played by James Oliva. And Doctor... was played by Sidney Malatare. Our music is made by the incredible Tom Rory Parsons. And I'm your showrunner and sound designer, Pacific S. Obadiah. Our producer is Tom Owen. And this is a bloody disgusting show. For more information, visit bloody-disgusting.com.